Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with World Series winner and the holder of just about every Angels offensive record, Garrett Anderson. He hits it to right field. Back goes Bobby Abreu. Still going back. It's a home run for Garrett Anderson. And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to Boone Podcast. Today we got a three-time All-Star and a 2002 World Series champ. Pretty much holds every offensive record in Angels history. Garrett Anderson. Garrett, thanks for coming on the podcast. Nah, no problem, man. Thanks for having me. And gee, I was looking at your numbers before you know, doing my preparation for our big interview tonight. You do hold every record. It's like hits, runs, ribbies, total bases, doubles. I think the only one Salmon's got Yonza Homers. Yeah, and and probably walks too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I saw that too. High at third. We'll get to that a little bit. Later. We'll get to that a little bit later. Uh, Let's go back to where it all started. You're a Southern Cal kid, three three sports star in high school, basketball, football, and baseball. Uh, was baseball always your first choice? No, definitely not. Basketball was my first love. Yeah, I love basketball. And, and truth be told, I didn't pick up ba- uh, baseball again until my junior year in high school. I so stopped basketball. playing baseball for probably four or five years. And my 11th grade year, my dad was like, hey, are you playing baseball still? And I'm like, nah, I'm just playing basketball. And he said, you might want to start playing baseball again. So that's when I picked it back up. So, so, you, so you end up going with baseball. All right, now we're going back to 1990. Mm-hmm. Your fourth-round pick with the Angels. What was, did, did you have colleges in mind? Were colleges coming after you? I had a scholarship to go to Fresno State to play baseball. I didn't have anything in ba- uh, basketball, but baseball, I did have something. Okay. Cause, so you signed in the fourth round. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, the, the topic comes up once in a while about kids today signing out of high school. I have a, a young son that, that's going through that. He went, to, he went the college route. I went the college route. And when I look at these young kids today, especially in high school, and you know everybody wants to talk about, oh, he's going to be a high pick, he's not. And and I and I tell the parents especially, I always say, you know, it takes a special type of kid to sign out of high school. Not every kid is ready, you know. It, it takes more than that physical talent, but but that mental, it's got to be something different because all of a sudden, it's like in your situation, you go from high school to next thing you know, you're in Boise, Idaho. And you're playing a 142-game minor league season versus coming out of high school. Speak to that a little bit. Yeah, it was, for me personally, It's and, and I've talked to different parents about this. For me, I was mature. I, I think it has a lot to do with what's going on, going on off the field. Uh, I was able, I was, you know, I was a single parent. My mom was a single parent growing up, so I did everything for myself. Uh, I took care of everything I needed to take care of. So when I went away, and I went away a lot during the summers to visit family. So it wasn't really a big deal to me to go away. So that part of it, I wasn't homesick. And my biggest adjustment, like you just said, is playing baseball every day. And that's what was hard for me. But being away wasn't that big of a deal. Um, but to, to, to the point that you're asking is that um, I think most kids, in my, in my opinion, aren't ready 
to go away and to take care of themselves and put baseball on top of it. I think that's really a lot to handle. College is a little easier because things are done for you. Yeah, and I went to college. I, I think it's it's kind of I've come to the conclusion it's kind of a stopgap between, you know, you're getting away from mommy. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. but she's still there. You know, I went to Southern Cal and that was only 45 minutes from where I went to high school. So mm-hmm. mom and dad were kind of a, you know, I could keep them at, at an arm's length, but yet I could get my laundry done. And I could get yeah. some meals brought up on the weekend. So it was kind of, mm-hmm. I was growing up a little bit, but I, but I still, it was kind of a spoon fed. It didn't make me grow up all at once. Believe me, uh, coming out of high school, I thought I was ready to go. Shoot, you asked me <laughs> back then. I said, I, you just put me in the big leagues right now. You know, I had a lot to yeah. learn and, and college was good for me. But like you said, uh, it depends how you grew up and, and there's a maturity yeah. level. That, that you see in very few 18-year-olds, but they're out there. And, yeah. and the rest of us, we got to go to college. <laughs> we we yeah, can't no, do I, it. I totally agree with that. I mean, I totally agree with that. There's, this, there's so much to be, you know, to go to the next level and start playing with people who are better than you. And you're just as talented they are, but you still don't have what's going on between the ears to be able to post every day. And that's, that was my biggest struggle is the next day going to play again. So you come up in the in the uh, Angels organization, and you know I saw this too. You had to go through Vancouver, the Cove. Mm-hmm. Now I played my AAA. I was in Calgary, and that was the PCL. Uh, the Cove was unbelievable. It's the smallest ballpark that played bigger than you could imagine, and it, that they had that high grass. <laughs> I mean, that's a tough place to hit. Yeah, it was it was the exact opposite of Calgary. We called Calgary the moon because there was no there was no gravity there and the ball just stayed in the air. But yeah, to what you're saying, Calgary. I mean, I'm sorry, Vancouver was a very difficult place to hit, and it it helped me. You know, it helped me a lot. I mean, you know, ground balls were going to be scooped up by infielders, and the ball just hung in the air and didn't go anywhere. So it really favored me because naturally I'm a line drive swinger. So. Um, I didn't have too many issues playing there because everything I hit was pretty much on the line. 94, you get called up, get your cup of coffee, and 95 is when you really break out. You hit 321 and you establish yourself. Uh, go on to hit 306 times in the big leagues, 02 and 03. You lead the league in doubles, driving 104 times, and you played on some pretty uh, – Pretty special teams there in Anaheim. Talk about those those Anaheim teams uh, that you played on the first ten years of your career. Uh, early on, it was a little rough. I mean, <laughs> we have some, yeah. Uh, some now that I'm thinking about it, it's like I didn't we get to you until 2000. We were young, you know. But uh, you know, I grew up a lot, and I got some advice when I was a young player that said, you know what, you need to go out and play every day. It doesn't matter how bad the team is. You need to go out and 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 and, you know, do your job. And, you know, the fans are paying to see you play. Go do your job. Don't worry about your surroundings. But, yeah, we got a good group of guys um, that we got toward our run to the O2 World Series. And it was it, w- it was fun. I mean, I think we were together about seven or eight years. And uh, the big piece of the pie was adding Vladimir Guerrero. I mean, he really took us over the top to be contenders every year. And he came after the World Series, but – when he got there, it became like, you know what? We're good every year. We have a chance to go to the playoffs every year. And we had a really good run. Yeah, in those early 2000s, that was a fun time. That was uh, 
in the American League West, we were kind of a powerhouse. Yeah. And, and it was, yes, we uh, were. Every, everybody was good. Yeah. And, and I remember that 2002 season. I don't know if you remember it as well as I do. Uh, <laughs> the, the very end, because 2001, uh, that Mariner team we were on, and, you know, we won the 116 games, <laughs> end yeah. up getting beat, trying to get to back to, to the uh, World Series. And then in 02, we start off the same way. And we're kind of boat racing the field at the break. Mm -hmm. And and we're off to our, you know, we're on pace to win 110 games. Second half, a little bit of a different story. And I remember that last road trip. We go to Texas. We lose a crucial game. And we come into Anaheim. And I forget what we had to do, but we had to have a – we had to have a really good series against you. I think you guys, mm-hmm. I think you might've swept us to kind of knock us out. You finished in second, I think that year. And yeah, uh, I think Oakland won, right? Oakland won the division. Yeah, they did. And, and the funny story about that is that, you know, everybody talks about their 20, I think it was 21 game uh, win streak they uh, had. Well, mm-hmm. during that time we were 19 for 20. So they didn't, they only picked up a game on us during that time. So our second half that year was crazy. We were really good. We were, we were winning two out of three. We were taking series, and uh, and that's what you know helped us do really well. And you know, finishing strong like that helped us to do well in the postseason. So that season, all right. So you knock me out. I go home, and 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 by the way, we're all all our all us Mariner guys are sitting there thinking, wait a minute, what happened the second half? We had this <laughs> thing wrapped up again, and we got our butt whooped. But uh, you guys go to the World Series, and and kind of a kind of a famous moment, you know, especially the people in the know. Take me through, I, I think it was game, was it game five or maybe game, maybe game six where Dusty Baker, you guys are losing five to nothing. Dusty Baker goes to the mount, gives the ball to Ortiz, takes him out of the game. Here comes the rally monkey. You guys go on to come back, beat him, and then beat him in game seven to win the whole thing. Uh, yeah. You remember that? I do. And, and I'm going to be a bubble buster because nobody on the bench saw Dusty give Ortiz the ball. No, that, that didn't come up until after the game. You know, the reporters are asking us and they're like, no, I didn't see it. We were upset that we were losing the game and, you know, he's dealing. Nobody cared about what Dusty was doing. You know, anytime a manager goes out and pick up a, take a picture out, you're not looking what they're doing. So none of us saw it. So they tried to make it a story, and it wasn't a story with us. But they obviously they made it into a story, and yeah, you know there were some big hits late in that game, and it was you know one of the best games that we played that year to be able to come from behind on a you know a great team. They're a very good team, and their bullpen was deep. So uh, it definitely gave us a lot of um, uh, what is it momentum for the next day. Even though your starting pitching is your momentum, but we definitely felt like we stole one that night. And what was that like for? for the city of Anaheim still, I, I think it's the only world championship. Um, yeah. What did that do for the city? I think, you know, with the change of the guard, Artie Marino had come in and, and kind of famously changed it and, and went from the, you know, the big a from the seventies and the eighties to, to kind of a new wave type thing. Artie Marino is kind of, you know, he was heralded as kind of the Steinbrenner of the West coast comes out there and, and you guys won the world series. How was that for the city? Uh, you know what? People still talk about it to this day. You know, I'll run into fans every now and then and, you know, they'll bring it up. You know, it's a, it's a sense of pride, especially for all the heartache that the Angels went through in the 80s and 70s. 
to be able to, you know, get one. And the first one is always the most special because, you know, after we won in 02 and we went to the, you know, playoffs several years after that, it was never quite the same from the fans. That first time through, it was crazy. I mean, every night it was, you know, so loud and the fans were going crazy. And, um, yeah, it's just, it's a sense of pride I think the city has. And, um, you know, I think Artie's tried to do his best, you know, as far as putting a, you know, a good uh, team on the field. But, you know, it just hasn't happened. And and I noticed, I think I went to a game two years ago and I I was waiting for the rally monkey. Did, I think they've retired the rally monkey. No, it's still there. It's still there. Did <laughs> you guys like there. the rally? They don't use it as much as they used to, but it's definitely still there because I did pre and post game last year for a few games and uh, they bring it out. But it's it's more mainly like the eighth inning, you know, ninth inning. They're not bringing that thing out any anytime earlier than that. They, it's like, you know, when it's appropriate. So they don't really kill it like they did back then. Well, I'll tell you, back in the day when I'd come to Anaheim, Anaheim was one of my favorite places always. It was like I was coming home. And, man, I love the rally monkey. And I remember <laughs> sitting there for for years and talking to my partner over there on the right side, Johnny Olerud. Mm-hmm. And I'd say, Rude, you think the monkey's coming out tonight? And and the thing is, when the rally monkey came out, I think it wasn't good news for us, the opponents. But it was almost worth it to be closer down by a run just so the monkey would come out. And I, yeah. I loved it. We all loved it. But home team, did you guys like it? It, You know what? It, it got to the point where it's like it, it kind of – when you see something all the time, it kind of gets old. You know, the first the first run – was fun, but after that, it's like you know what we know why they're doing it. It's a it's a monetary thing. You know they're trying to make money. Disney was trying to make money with that thing. So uh, the the players didn't pay attention on our side. We didn't pay attention to it too much because you know we saw it. You know you know for most you know probably half the year or whatever we'd see it come out. And when I talk about those uh, talk about your Anaheim teams of the early two thousands. Um, it always came to mind is, you know, and I remember having our, our team meetings uh, for the series with you guys. And your theme was you guys were always had your foot on the accelerator. You were always running the bases as aggressive as any team, probably in baseball at the time. And I remember telling these guys, they're going to go first to third. They're going to they're going to press you. They're going to push you. They're you know, they're going to score when they probably shouldn't score. Mm-hmm. And uh, it used to drive me crazy because I wanted our teams to do that. I, I love the way you guys ran the bases. Uh, you know, I remember Sean Figgins at second base and I could stand on the bag and he'd steal third right <laughs> in my face and he knew it. And it would drive me crazy if I didn't have the right guy on the mound. But but was that attributed to Sosha? Because I oh, think it, it made Mike. the difference. It was all Mike. It was definitely all I Mike. Think, his, first, yeah. his first spring training was like, you know what? Our first spring training, guys, I want you to go first to third. I don't care if you get thrown out. I want to change your mentality about running the bases. So that whole spring, his first year, yeah, we got thrown out at third, you know, many times. But over over the course of years, we started to realize that, that he made us aggressive. So we started looking to take the extra base. And he was definitely responsible for all that. He took all the pressure off of us. He said, hey, if you get thrown out, I'll take the heat for you because we're going to try to press the issue, you know. And I loved it. You know, and my favorite play that he always did is the – runner at third we know it was contact play i loved it he he didn't care except for benji Molina. 
if we had a man at third with less than two outs, we definitely were doing a contact play. And there was a time when we were in uh, Baltimore and, and Rip was playing third. And he walked over to me and he said, hey, you guys doing it? I said, yeah. And he said, it's the best playing baseball. And I just like, I, I, I totally agree with you. I said, you know, there's so much anticipation. You know they're running. Anything put in play, you got to make a perfect throw. You're an infielder. You know if you take a step to a left and a right, it's going to be a tough play that – tough at the plate to make a play. And we all knew that. So anytime we had that situation, everybody loved it. I'm telling you, it's such a difference maker. I think in, in that division that we were in, that is the one thing in a given season that separated your Anaheim ball clubs from everybody else. And it was, mm-hmm. it was something that I would preach to my team. Like we got to run the bases like they do. Mm-hmm. And, and being an outfielder, you know how it is when the, when your opponent runs the bases like you guys did, yeah, you know, you they always, pressure they on always, yeah, you got to yeah. make a good play. Cause they always, they always used to say, Oh, don't test each you row and run. Well, when you know, they're going to run in your face, that throw <laughs> gets a little tighter. It and, does get a little tighter. <laughs> and I'm telling you, at second base, I've never been scared of a defensive play in my life. We'd be in Anaheim. I'd be infield in, and I'm like, so you watching me? You see how in I am? And I knew it didn't matter because it was like, it I'm going to take a couple couple more steps just so they, they know I'm too close. They can't. And he'd run right in my face. And it was that yeah. pressure of, all right, I got to. I got a field to clean. I got to throw a strike because I know there. It was almost like being Ricky Henderson at first in the eighth when everybody in the park knew you were going to go. You still went and you stole the base every time. I, I thought it was awesome. I thought it's yeah. what separated you guys. And I still talk to young players and young teams today. And, and you guys are always my reference. I, I thought it was mm-hmm. unbelievable. I was but a those, beneficiary of that. I mean, there's so many times that Sean would, Figgins would be at third and I have a nasty lefty on the mound late in the game, all I had to do was put the ball in play. I didn't have to hit a fly ball, you know. So it took so much stress off of me of trying to hit a fly ball for a sack fly. I put it in play. He scored. I mean, it was it was comical. Cause, and he already knew that I was the type of person, if I swung at the ball, I'm going to make contact. So he was already taking a step or two on contact. So that's why he never had to worry about getting thrown out. You had some uh... – some great players on the team. You, you know, yeah, Timmy, Timmy, you know, his whole career, he was in Anaheim, Tim mm-hmm. Salmon. You had, you had Ersty over there, Darren Erstad. Vladdy came on, like you said, after that world championship year, uh, Troy Gloss, who was the O2 MVP in the world mm-hmm. series. Sean Figgins, he's coming back again. That He gives me nightmares yeah. running those bases. Yeah. And, one my fa- and one of my favorite, it, it, that's what I was going to mention. Last but yeah. not least, one of my favorite players. And other than probably you, the last guy I wanted up in that sack fly situation or, or a situation where you had to handle the bat mm-hmm. was David Eckstein. Yeah. Because gonna he was going to get the job done. Mm-hmm. And, uh, man, what you know, you watch him play shortstop, and it's like, how is this kid playing short? And he gets you by a step every time. He, I re- he I, and I tell people he's one of my favorite teammates because he had, you know, half the talent anybody had. And he had to play 100% every stinking night just to keep up with everybody else. 
And he did it. He knew he had to do it. And I remember the first time I saw, you know, I was playing left field in spring training, the first time he was playing shortstop. And it was a ground ball hit to him, and he let it go. And it looked like it was going, you know, 20 rows deep. <laughs> but it was a parachute going across the infield. And I was like, this guy's going to really pay shortstop for us at some time. And, you know, next thing you know, he's our shortstop because he can make the routine play. He didn't make the great play, but he – made the play. Everything hit to him, he made the play. And that's all you really have to do. Yeah, he, he was a really good I, I remember, I think, early when he, when he first got called up, you know, because you know when he walked, he, he never walked at first. And, and I think I no. said to him one time, I said, Axie, you, you know, it's, <laughs> it's a walk, it's not a run, right? <laughs> but he was. He, he was a good player and, and a thorn in a lot of people's side. I'm sure it wasn't yes, just was. the Mariners. I mean, this guy gets hit 30, 40 times a year. I mean, you know, he did everything he did he could to get on base. You weren't going to strike him out, especially no, when, no. when you know, when a, you couldn't have a strikeout. Just mm-hmm. a good player. Um, and you mentioned uh, early in the segment, you talked about your walk totals. <laughs> I looked it up. <laughs> your, your high was 38. Now, I wasn't a walker, Garrett. <laughs> But I had more than 38. Then you get Vladdy come to town. That's quite a duo right there. I mean, yeah, you got yeah. two guys that can hit anything, and they ain't walking. But on a serious note, when you were coming up in the minor leagues, because I laugh at, at the some of the instruction people are giving, like, well, you need to walk more. Uh, you need to work the count more. Well, I'll tell you what. You tell me to go walk, that'll be the quickest way to get me to 0-2. Because yeah. you know as well as I do, that doesn't happen. You can't just teach people to walk. That's a thing no, you that you're born with. You can improve on it, but but if you're not a walker, you're never going to be a walker. And and I think it's a detriment to some kids to try to force that on them because you take away their aggressiveness. Uh, how was that approach with you uh, starting? You know, starting in the minor leagues. In the minor leagues, I never heard a word. Not any time during my four years in the minor leagues that you need to walk more. All they cared about was, and Joe Madden was our, he was our hitting instructor, the the minor league hitting instructor. He said, all I care about is seeing line drives. I want you to be a good hitter. He said, you're going to have to hit your way to the big leagues. So don't care about walking. Don't care about this or that. Just go out and hit. So my mindset was always about hitting, you know, and then I get to the big leagues and you know, you hear the the whispers about he doesn't walk, he doesn't walk, but I'm like, well, okay. But, and I tried it at times, like to be more selective. And like you said, I was 0-2. I had no aggressiveness. And I'm like, you know what? Forget that. I'm swinging. And I looked for my pitch and I hunted the fastball most of my career. And that's, that's the approach I took. And, and I kind of laughed to these, to this day. I was like, I wonder, you know, what, <laughs> how I'll be looked at as a player <laughs> in today's age you know, about not walking, but you know what? I carried a, a plus 290 average, and I drove in a lot of runs. So, you know, I don't think too many people could say anything about that. Yeah, it's uh, 292, 2,500 hits, mm-hmm. and f- almost 1,400 RBIs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think I think you took the right, <laughs> the right <laughs> approach. Let's talk about your bat. Okay, now, I, I, was, I was at the cage the other day with a bunch of young minor league players. My son was there. Uh, a bunch of guys getting ready for minor league camp. And, and you know, today's kids, everybody's using a 33 and a half, 33 inch bat. And I'm just sitting there thinking, man, and you know, in my day and 
before our time, the minimum you used was a 34. 34, usually the standard in our day was a 34, yeah. 32. Some guys uh-huh. use a 34, 31. You know, maybe an yeah. occasional Tony Gwynn using a 33 and a half. But I mentioned to him the other day, I said, we got Garrett coming on the on the podcast. He used a big bat. How big was your bat? I remember asking you about it when we come to Anaheim because it seemed like you just set it on your shoulder and just throw it through the zone. How big was it? So my first from 95 to 99, I used, you know, 34, 32, like everybody else. And then Mo Vaughn, you know, they sign him. And he's Mo swings at 36, 36. So I take one of his bats and I just started using it in batting practice just to fool around with it, just to see what it felt like. And after a couple of weeks, I said, you know what? I think I can swing this. And Mo was like, yeah, whatever. So I get um, uh, Vinny Castilla's bat and I had him make it like his. And it's a really balanced bat. So it's not top heavy at all. And I had a 36, it was a 36, 36. And I took it in against right-hand sinker ballers, something I don't have to worry about somebody, you know, coming inside if I can get the head out. And that's where it took off. I used it for about eight years. And the last few, you know, the last few uh, years of my career, I realized I couldn't swing it anymore, and I scaled back to like a 35, 32, and I finished with that. But um, it, what it did for me was is that, one, I got great wood. All my, you know, I didn't break too many bats with that size of bat. And it allowed me to, uh, it helped me stay back and use my hands. Because I never worried, I never worried about hitting anybody's fastball. So what it did is help me stay on off-speed pitches a little bit better. And yeah, I used a 36-36 for more than half of my career. And I think a lot of people, you know, especially when you're young, you want to grab that lightest bat, you know, yeah, they can get through the zone. I, I found, too, sometimes uh, the bat would feel too light. It feels too light, too good. It's almost like I'm swinging a wiffle ball bat up there. I'm, I'm yeah. swinging mm-hmm. probably too hard anyway. Put a light yeah. bat in my hand. But, yeah, I don't, I don't think I'd go to the 36-36. <laughs> Garrett Anderson, who was toughest on you? Three pitchers you don't want to see ever again. Uh, uh, my first one is Pedro Martinez. Um, and the thing about him, it wasn't that, um, I mean, he, you know, he, he great in his own right. Hall of Fame pitcher. Um, and I always said he had nine pitches because he can throw fastball, curveball, change up from three different arm angles. But the thing with him is he could make me miss. And that was my whole thing is putting the ball in place. So, he was the toughest guy that I faced, and um, I love the challenge, but, you know, he owned me. I think I was like two for 17 or two for 20 off of him. Um, I think the second one would be Randy Johnson because I was just worried about my safety <laughs> more than anything. But, you know, toward the end of his career, I started hitting him more because his velocity dropped and, you know, he kept the ball down and he was pitching better. And a third pitcher? Um I can't think of a third. Those two always stick in my mind about who I didn't like to face. You know, after that, you know, I don't know about the numbers of other pitchers or whatever who, you know, owned me and whatever, but I never cared about that. But those two guys, they got my attention when I got in the box. So we get to your retirement, and uh, now we go to 2016. Uh, you're inducted into the Angel Hall of Fame. How special was that? 
it was uh it was really special for me uh one is because how it ended with the angels it wasn't really favorable and you know i let the emotional side kind of get you know kind of creep in a little bit um that i wasn't really allowed to finish my career there cuz you know i only i went to atlanta and played another year and after that i was pretty much done i played with the dodgers and you know i did some utility outfield but i was done so it was a little bitter for me when I left, um, and you know it took a little time to get over it because you know the players we play our whole organization, our whole career in the organization. You get emotionally involved into the organization. It's not totally business, but the other side, you know, they have to make business decisions, and sometimes players just they don't really see that. Um, I didn't see it at the time, but as time went on, you know, it's like okay, hey, I get it. They have to make a decision. They have to move on for the better of the team. And we all know that this game doesn't stop for anybody. No one person is bigger than a team, no matter how great you are. Um, so to have them call me and say, hey, we're going to put you in the Hall of Fame, it was, a, it was, it was humbling. It was an honor, um, something real special, you know, with the Angels. And I have a special place for the Angels in my heart. All right. Well, Garrett Anderson. I appreciate you coming on, man. And what we do here in the Boone Podcast is we bring in the voice of the Boone Podcast, Dan Levy, to ask our guest a question from the fans. Danny. Hey, guys. How are you? Good, good. All right. This one comes from Todd and San Pedro. Garrett, what team did you grow up rooting for? I didn't grow up rooting for a team. I actually ran home all the time to watch the Dodgers. But as I got older, I realized I was only watching the Dodgers to listen to our beloved Vince Scully. I loved listening to him call a game. And the first time I met him is when we started doing uh, interleague play. And we went up to play the Dodgers. And he walked in. Uh, it was Mike's uh, associate's first year. And he walked in the clubhouse and went into the locker room. And Dodgers visiting locker room was really small. And I heard his voice, and the hair on the back of my neck stood up. And I ran in there to introduce myself and told him that I love listening to him do the game. So not a big team fan, but Vince Scully was my guy growing up. Wow. Great answer. Garrett Anderson, yeah. thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Uh, thank you. appreciate it. Mailbag. All right, Brett, you know that sound. It means it is time for the Brett Boone Mailbag. Ready to roll? Ready to do it. All right, let's go in. This one's from Jack in San Diego. Brett, do you believe in superstitions? Wasn't a big superstition guy, Jack. Um, I'll tell you, I didn't. I'm, I'm from the adage of if it's if it's not broken, don't fix it. So I would jump over the line. I don't want to mess with walking on the on the, the foul line. Uh, I would do the little things um, probably if I had something good, you know, a certain thing for lunch that day and I had a big day, I'd probably try to have a similar lunch. But outside of that, no, I, I didn't take it to extremes. Did you ever see any really odd superstitions in your baseball career? Did you ever notice anybody else and go, well, that guy is doing something strange? Well, no, I didn't see any real extreme extreme, but uh, there were guys that definitely had rituals. They would do this. They they had to have this on their plate at a certain time. They had to have uh, a certain color. I, I, I have no idea. A certain color drink on the 
day, you know, before their third at bat or, or something crazy. Uh, I never got that far. You know, I, I, I was, I was simple. If I got a hit, um, try to do what I did last time that I got a hit. <laughs> if I didn't get a hit next time, uh, well, don't do that again. So I, I kept it pretty simple. All right. Let's dig back into the old mailbox. All right. This one comes from Bob in Cleveland. Brett, you played with the Mariners during a time when 90s grunge was still a big thing. Did you ever get to hang out with Nirvana, Pearl Jam, or any of those guys? I uh, got to hang out with Pearl Jam a little bit, uh, Eddie Vedder and the boys, and let's see, Alice in Chains. Wow. Yeah, they used to, they were fans and they'd come by the, uh, come by the locker room once in a while. Uh, Eddie Vedder come down, hit batting practice with us. So yeah, that was, that was the heyday for, for grunge. And, uh, yeah, I got to meet a few guys. How was Eddie in the box? He'd better than you think, better than you think. The day I came in, he's, uh, our, our PR guy said, uh, Booney, you know, lead singer, Pearl Jam, Eddie Vedder's here. You know, he wants to meet you. I said, yeah, that'd be great. After batting practice, I'd be happy to meet him. I, c- I come rolling up, uh, after batting practice, nobody's in the clubhouse. And, you know, Eddie Vedder's sitting in the middle of the clubhouse. I have no clue what Eddie Vedder looks like. So I go to the PR guy and say, hey, there's some guy hanging out in the locker room. What's he doing here? He said, that's Eddie Vedder. So I said, oh, I had forgot. So I called him over. I said, Eddie, what's going on, man? And then, uh, you know, I was a fan of Pearl Jam anyway. And then I became uh, a big fan. He came out with hit batting practice with us. And he was actually, he was actually pretty good. He had a pretty good hack. <laughs> One of the nicest guys I've ever met. He's awesome. I love Eddie Vedder. Yeah, he's a good guy. All right, that is going to do it for the Brett Boone Mailbag. And if you want to go ahead and submit any questions to the Boone, you can do so by hitting him up on Twitter, at TheBoon29. He's also on Facebook and Instagram. That's going to do it for the Brett Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy, the technical director and producer of the Boone Podcast. Executive producer of this podcast is Rich Herrera. Digital content is all handled by the one, the only Liz Landry. Please share the Boom Podcast with neighbors, friends, and make sure you subscribe to the Boom Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. And while you're at it, just give us a five-star rating and share your feelings about the Boom Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to for the show. For all of us here at the Boom Podcast, my name is Dan Levy. Thanks for listening. We'll do it again soon. Take care.